Capitalism can feel all-encompassing. The free market, the division of labor, the mysterious invisible hand. If you live in a capitalist society long enough, you stop seeing this system for what it is, an invention. And one that sprung out of a very different context. Adam Smith was an 18th century Scottish philosopher, and he wrote the landmark 1776 book, The Wealth of Nations, which you've almost certainly heard of. But this work was a lot more nuanced than the sloganized tropes that you might know from it. At the heart of Smith's capitalist vision was his criticism of a different system, mercantilism, which felt like the all-encompassing economic system of his day. In fact, Smith, the so-called father of capitalism, really thought of himself as a moral philosopher first. And he thought of his 1759 book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, as his real magnum opus. So why do we remember Adam Smith as some kind of capitalist champion? I'm Sean Ailing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Glory Liu. She's a lecturer at Harvard and the author of Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. Liu tells the story behind the story of Smith. Her book is, of course, about Smith's ideas, but it's really about how his legacy has been used and abused in America for all kinds of political and ideological reasons. Her work is part of a broader scholarly effort to revisit Smith in light of all this revisionism. To be honest, I didn't realize how much I actually dug Smith until I read her book. And I wanted to invite her on to talk about him and how he should be remembered today. Glory Lou, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Adam Smith. Let's talk about him. What do you want to know? Okay, so Adam Smith cast a very large shadow in our intellectual history, and so many people think they know what he was about, you know, the father of capitalism. But I assume you wrote this book in part because you think the reality is a little more complicated than that, than the story we have of Smith. Is that fair? That's totally fair. As a political theorist and intellectual historian, I know Smith as this Scottish Enlightenment figure who wrote a book on moral philosophy, who had planned a book on law and government, who had also written about the arts, has an essay on the history of astronomy, and he also happened to write The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776, right? That very fateful year that we associate with the American Revolution. But Smith is so much more than being the father of free market economics. And I was really bothered by this gap between the popular caricatures of Smith on the one hand and the reality, like you said, is way more complicated. And there are two ways to go about solving that puzzle. One is to say, 
I'm going to myth bust. <laughs> I'm going to show people who the real Adam Smith is. And this is what people in my field do as Smith scholars in political theory and in history and many other fields is they try to recover what they consider is a really authentic view of Adam Smith and what his original intentions were. But then the other version of how to kind of explain that gap is to tell a history of why we got the Smith that we got. And that's what I decided to do in this book, because that hadn't been done yet. Was there something about Smith, you know, his ideas or his life that appealed to you very early on? Or did you decide to study him and write this book because you thought that all the competing interpretations of him revealed something important and maybe overlooked about the American story. So I was actually drawn to Smith because of the recent scholarship. And when I say recent, I mean kind of circa when I was in graduate school, you know, 2010 as a master's student and then starting my PhD in 2012. And the scholarship on Smith at that point had really done this remarkable recovery of Smith as this um We'll call it a moral critic of capitalism. Yeah. They're really looking at Smith's ideas about poverty and Smith's ideas about inequality. Smith on kind of the political economy of progressive ideas. And I was really drawn to that because I think maybe it's obvious in the book, but I don't know if it is, but like my own personal politics drew me to those kinds of ideas, right? Like what does the father of capitalism have to say about why inequality might or might not be a problem? Or what does the father of capitalism say about poverty and what kind of problem it is? So I was really drawn to Smith because I thought that he might be a resource for thinking about these kinds of problems in our own times. And I was really surprised to learn that there was just a very different side of Smith that I had not learned when I was an undergrad. But I also got the sense that these readings of Smith as a kind of reworked progressive thinker who cared deeply about moral corruption and what commercial society does to our morals also seemed a bit too contemporary. There was something that really struck me as like, this is really so lively, like, is that the right Smith? was my question. And I thought, oh, you know, of course he's not just the Chicago-style economist, but is he a social democrat is kind of the blunt way to put it. And because I was so puzzled by these, like, dueling visions of Smith, I think that's why I decided to kind of go back to the drawing board yeah. and say, well, how did we get these different versions of Smith and why do they do so much work for us? We will get there. I do want to help establish a kind of picture of what he was actually about in the minds of listeners before mm. we get to maybe, you know, how he was distorted. Yeah, yeah. He's clearly best known, perhaps not justly, but he is best known for the wealth of nations, his big opus on political economy, which interestingly enough, came out in 1776. I also didn't know that. What did he think he was doing in that book? What was his project? So Smith is trying to inform the world, and for him, that means the world of people in power and people with access to power and people who are in a position to be thinking about national wealth. He's trying to inform that world about a new way of thinking about 
political economy, and I'm going to break that term down. For Smith, political economy is part of the branch of the science of the legislator or statesmanship. It really is about kind of the craft of doing politics and about statecraft. And you have to understand where national wealth comes from, how it's produced, how it flows, different interest groups competing for power, managing national banks, what to do when there's a kind of coinage crisis. These are all issues of national importance of Smith's time. And so what he does in The Wealth of Nations is say, look, right now there's this dominant view in the mercantile system that national wealth is measured in gold and silver coin, right? How much coin can the country hoard? And that counts as national wealth. And on that view of things, you want to export more than you import. And to do that, companies need to kind of lobby the government for these exclusive privileges in order to get monopolistic or, you know, really, really, really competitive advantages to dominate a market so that they can bring back gold and silver and also make sure that they don't have any competition. That's the mercantile system. That's the world Smith is living in. And I think one of the best examples of that in action is the British East India Company, right? Probably the most notorious corporate power, if you want to call it that, during Smith's time. And you mentioned 1776, (laughs) the Boston Tea Party, those are chests of tea that are from the British East India Company because they had recently gotten this monopoly privilege for kind of tea growing and harvesting in India. So in Smith's time, This idea of national wealth is one that he thinks is really distorted. And he opens the wealth of nations by trying to show people that national wealth actually comes from the product of human labor. And he starts off with these incredible illustrations of really ordinary objects and how they're produced and how the division of labor, like actual humans doing actual work, is the source of national wealth. And once you reorient yourself towards that view of national wealth, The questions about how to manage it and how to build a state and how to govern it in a way that is productive as well as fair and doesn't allow one class of wealthy elite to oppress the other, that's what he's trying to get people to realize. I do think the way a lot of people judge still the success of an economy is by looking at how much profit it creates or how much wealth it creates. But that does not seem to be the central metric for Smith. Mm-hmm. I mean, did he think it was more important to maximize profit or human welfare? Now, I know a conservative might hear that question and say, that's a false choice, right? That perhaps maximizing profits is ultimately the most reliable way to maximize human welfare. Uh-huh. I would disagree with that, but I don't want to go too far into the weeds on that. We'll just stick to Smith and what he believed here. So for Smith, a good measure of national wealth was how readily available, how plentiful, and how cheap and how accessible basic necessities are. So he really cared about whether you have enough food to live on and to survive. Not just survive, but actually live a meaningful life. And he also says that there are certain kinds of goods that we might consider superfluous or maybe more than basic, like a linen shirt. But he says that if in our society— 
A person who doesn't have a linen shirt cannot go about in public life without facing shame and ridicule. That's a basic necessity. And people should be able to access these basic necessities cheaply and plentifully. And that, when the kind of lowest members of society have cheap and ready and plentiful access to basic goods so that they not only can survive, but also live in public life without fear of shame or ridicule, that is when a nation is prosperous. So I guess it is to Smith's credit, at least in my estimation, that he thought it was a mistake to measure national wealth just in money, right? That you should look at the productive power of labor. And if I'm hearing you correctly, I didn't misunderstand him, right? The way I read that was the quality of life of the people who make up a society is really the ultimate measure, not necessarily just how much money they have. Yeah, yeah. So this conception of economics that we have today is very different than what Smith is doing. Political economy is about actual human beings. And what he does so well in The Wealth of Nations is show that political economy first starts with economic life. Like, how do people actually experience exchange and the benefits of exchange? How do people actually reap the benefits of the division of labor. He's talking about real humans with real jobs and real tangible outcomes. And it also talks about political economy as kind of the rules and institutions that we build that shape an economy that meets these needs. So it's not just this kind of abstract science of wealth creation or profit maximization. Far from that. If you look at the structure of the wealth of nations, it's very different than your classic textbook in intro to micro or macroeconomics today. It's deeply historical. It's very polemical at times. And it's very tangible and very human. Coming up after the break, Glory and I discuss Smith's views on human nature and how they influenced his ideas about capitalism. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Can we understand The Wealth of Nations, his most famous book, without understanding his first book, 
the theory of moral sentiments, which I think was published in 1759. I'm going to give a hot take answer oh, as yes. somebody who is a professional Smith scholar, I guess, in some sense. So I'm going to say yes and no. Ooh. Let's start with the no answer. I think you will not understand Smith as a thinker unless you read the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations together. And if you want to go the extra mile reading his essay on the history of astronomy, which is the kind of intellectual history of modern science, and the lectures on jurisprudence to understand how he thought about doing politics and the nature of politics, you just will miss out so much on what makes Smith a distinctive thinker spanning all these realms of human life from morality to political economy to political science. Can you read The Wealth of Nations without reading the theory of moral sentiments? I think you can. <laughs> Are you going to miss out on some of the richness and the textual interconnections between the theory of moral sentiments and The Wealth of Nations? Yes. But, and this is where maybe like I'm going to diverge from some of my colleagues, The Wealth of Nations and the theory of moral sentiments are asking two distinct questions. That doesn't mean they're not related in some capacity, but they are two distinct questions, right? In The Wealth of Nations, he's asking, what makes some nations wealthy and what makes other nations poor? What are the kind of foundational behaviors and institutions that make up economic life? That's a very distinct set of questions from the ones he's trying to answer in the theory of moral sentiments, which is about what are the origins of morality? Are human beings by nature selfish or altruistic? And is morality grounded in reason or in sentiment? Now, I'm far from somebody who's going to say the books are totally unrelated. There's an Adam Smith problem. He changed his mind. That is not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that if you are interested in Smith's answer to the questions he outlines in The Wealth of Nations, you can read The Wealth of Nations <laughs> and you'll have a kind of rich answer, even within that one book. But you are going to miss out on kind of the wealth of ideas from the rest of Smith's corpus if you think that that's the only thing that defines Adam Smith as a thinker. Why was the concept of sympathy so important to Smith's moral philosophy, and how might that intersect with the way he thought about a healthy capitalist economy? Sympathy is the linchpin of Smith's moral theory. So sympathy is the mechanism by which we try to understand other people, see their motivations, and see ourselves through them. So if I want to understand what you're going through, I am kind of imaginatively projecting myself into your position, right? I'm putting myself in your shoes. And that mechanism, that sympathetic mechanism, is a sentimental one. It's kind of based on our sentiments rather than our capacity for reason. And that's what enables us to make these moral judgments, these evaluations about my motivations, about my behavior, and my actions. And that's absolutely critical for Smith. How might that relate to the wealth of nations, right? So this is where I'm complicating my answer to your last question, which is that human behavior is not just one motivation or another. We are not always motivated by sympathy. We're also not always motivated by self-interest. Yes. We're these kind of complex but reasonably stable creatures, we're curious, we want to know what motivates other people, we want our behavior to be approved by others, which is why I'm not going to just like walk into your store if you're a candy shop owner and steal a bunch of candy, <laughs> because I know that that would 
be disapproved, right? And then I would be that woman that is known for, you know, robbing a candy store. At the same time, you can also see that you don't want me to get away with that behavior either, not only because it's not the right thing to do from the standpoint of morality, but because maybe there is some long-term reason grounded in your own self-interest, why you don't want to be seen as the shop that kind of condones theft. (laughs) And that might be appealing to your self-interest. All of that is to say that Smith thinks that human nature is a collection of these like very stable and very predictable motivations. Sympathy, a desire to be seen by others and to be known and approved of by others, as well as our interest in preserving ourselves and fulfilling our own self-interest. And those things go together, right? It's like, because I know through sympathy that you also care about yourself, that's what makes self-interest work. It's delimited in that sense. Well, I think this is part of what I like about him. He doesn't seem to think that human beings are inherently good or inherently bad or inherently anything, if by that you mean fixed in some way. Yeah. To say that we're motivated by self-interest is not not to say that we're motivated by self-interest exclusively, but there are a lot of people who take it that way. And he does not seem to believe that. And also to be super clear, to say that we're motivated by self-interest is not at all saying that we're motivated by greed. Yes. I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, one of the problems for me is that people will declare that such and such is true about human nature, you know, that we're selfish, say. Mm. And then they'll point to the success of capitalism as evidence of that selfish nature. Now, I won't say that capitalism is entirely wrong about human beings, but I would say that we build systems that cultivate and incentivize certain impulses, and then we look back and conclude that those impulses pre-existed those systems, or that they're just like natural laws or something. When Hmm. There's a more complicated feedback loop going on, you know? Yeah, and I think Smith is very keenly aware of that tendency. I often say to students, you know, when you're reading The Wealth of Nations and also reading The Theory of Moral Sentiments, notice where Smith sort of like hedges or where he's about to give a warning. (laughs) Also be really, really aware that when you think he's stating his position— He may, in fact, be reconstructing somebody else's position only to subvert it in the next sentence. So Smith is one of these incredibly balanced, careful thinkers who really wants to understand the contingencies of institutions that we create and to not take that as like the end-all, be-all for all time. And I think that's why he spends so much time, if you read book three and book four and book five of The Wealth of Nations— There's this like really in the weeds history of modern Europe and also like Central Asia of different taxation regimes (laughs) in, uh, I can't remember, you know, like 17th century France or different feudal property rights regimes because he's so thoughtful about why did this make sense for these people at that time? And now what does that say about our assumptions about human behavior? What does that say about our assumptions about what guarantees liberty? He's very, very careful. This is a good segue into uh, what Americans have done (laughs) to Smith, how we've interpreted him. I don't think you say this explicitly in the book, but do you think American interpreters over the years have 
bastardized Smith or weaponized him in ways that might make him unrecognizable to himself if he were alive today, which he most certainly is not. I certainly think that Americans have weaponized Smith. And that trend of weaponization stretches back much farther than I think people realize. Smith had already become this mascot, if you will, like a political mascot for free trade. When I say free trade, I really mean like free international trade in the mid-19th century. So that process of kind of like sloganizing, canonizing, weaponizing has a very, very long history. And that's part of what I try to show in my book is that there is this trend, there is this tendency to want to weaponize Smith for different political positions because Smith is seen as so valuable as like lending intellectual legitimacy to arguments or saying something about that political position that matters. Would that be unrecognizable to Smith? I think in some senses, yes, certainly. I think the the kind of like conventional libertarian free market fundamentalist view of Smith would be pretty unrecognizable. But I think he'd be like, well, I did say something sort of along those lines, but that was not at all what I was intending to say. So I can see where you got that idea from. But that was in a chapter about like investing in foreign versus domestic industry. So that's interesting. <laughs> and then I think there would be other cases where he might recognize the kernel of truth. Certainly the kind of sloganizing around free trade. Like Smith was an advocate for free trade, but he also thought that there were certain circumstances, infant industry protection or the priorities of national defense were more important than liberalizing trade. So I think that Smith would be more upset that people didn't read him as carefully and take him as seriously, that they didn't think the way he did. I think he'd be more upset about that than he would be about being weaponized. The fact that we think of Smith as an economist first, or even primarily, mm -hmm. and not as a moral philosopher, or even a psychologist in some ways, yeah. is already a sign that we haven't taken him seriously or that we've misunderstood his real project or his broader project. Yeah, absolutely. Nicholas Philipson, one of the great biographers of Smith and fantastic scholar of the Scottish Enlightenment, writes that the like title page of The Wealth of Nations, where it says the book title and then the name of the author, Smith is listed as professor of moral philosophy. He's not listed as the father of economics, Adam Smith. He's recognized in his time as a moral philosopher. You know, it's worth noting that moral philosophy is closer to kind of what we might call psychology today. And I think that it is important to remember moral philosophy is distinct from natural philosophy, like natural sciences versus human sciences. So that's what the moral denotes, rather than kind of ethical. Ethics certainly is part of moral philosophy, but moral really just means kind of the world of the human as opposed to the world of the physical nature. And yes, I do think that Smith saw the project in The Wealth of Nations to kind of systematically study through observation and then taking these specific examples and generalizing outward very much in the same vein that he did his moral philosophy to start with human experience to kind of document the moral phenomenology of all the different ways in which we experience moral encounters and moral judgment, and then to draw up principles from there. That is a scientific enterprise, and we don't see those things connected today, but Smith certainly did in his time. 
So when you say, as you do in the book, that Smith's reception in America is a story about, quote, the politics of political economy, what does that mean? I think that phrase means two things for me. First, I'm really insistent that when we think about political economy as a field of inquiry, economics as a field of inquiry, we need to think about it as not a kind of transcendental, ahistorical mode of inquiry, but the very ideas, the like central precepts and axioms of economics are always products of their political and historical and cultural circumstances. So that's the first thing, is that economics is historically contingent. <laughs> the language of political economy, as it was being invented, the very field, the idea that political economy was a science, is a product of a moment in history. So that's one one way of understanding it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say everything is. <laughs> no, I don't think economy is exceptional, or economics is exceptional in that, in that sense. I think that... I want to agree, and I think you'd be surprised at the number of people who wouldn't agree with that. So that's one thing that I wanted to say. The second thing that I mean when I say the politics of political economy is that political economy is a language of authority. Mm. It has power. Politics is about power. It's not just about policymaking or agenda setting, but it's about ideology craft. And that's the level of the kind of the politics of political economy that I'm interested in. Like, why does this style of thinking have so much power? And as a result of that, or as part of that, like, why does thinking of Smith as an economist have so much power? The Chicago School of Economics plays a big role in this story, as it should. And I really want to talk about that. But I should ask first, what is the Chicago School for whom that doesn't mean anything? And how did they popularize or hijack, perhaps, if that's not too strong a word, <laughs> Adam Smith's legacy? So I would say in the most generic terms, the Chicago School of Economics stands for a brand of economics that is very free market oriented and associated with the politics of free enterprise and deregulation. Within the economics discipline, the Chicago School is more than and certainly not limited to a certain politics or an ideology. It's a methodology, and it's the methodology of price theory that prices explain allocation. Everything can kind of be understood through prices. And I should also say that the Chicago School is never really just one thing. It develops over time. It spans different generations of thinkers from the Great Depression and onward. And it's quite heterogeneous at the beginning, but it becomes the Chicago School, I think, as we recognize it today, associated with that kind of brand of free market economics, I would say by the 60s and 70s. I was going to say, I feel like there's a boogeyman term that's hovering and I just want to say it. Yeah, neoliberalism. Yes. <laughs> People might know the name Milton Friedman, right? So these are like sort of the apostles of what kind of became neoliberalism. Is that right? Yes, that is what many people believe. <laughs> I, I hesitate to say like, yes, absolutely, that, that's right, because it's controversial. I think maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, and that's very controversial, right? Because neoliberalism is this bogeyman turn. It means a lot of different things, but I think one very strong consensus about neoliberalism is just this idea that like markets 
can be used everywhere for all kinds of social and political problems. And that version of neoliberalism has, as one of its origin points, the University of Chicago beginning in like 1946. Was there something in the ether at that moment in American history that made Smith the perfect patron saint of capitalism? Or is it just an accident of history that a particular group of people at a particular moment in time said, yeah, this is the dude, this is the guy, he's going to be the face? There was something in the ether. Two big things happen. So first is the Great Depression. This is a cataclysmic event. It is not a good look to be defending free market capitalism after the Great Depression. After the Great Depression, most economists in America who are a very, very different kind of schools of thought, have a kind of plurality of political positions. But for the most part, after the Great Depression, nobody's saying, you know what we need more of? Free markets and unregulated capitalism. The Great Depression really kind of gets people to reorient and say, like, maybe we should think about managing things a little bit more scientifically here. And that's why you get the rise of Keynesian managerialism. But then the second thing is the Cold War and this kind of fear of central planning, central planning in many forms, not just Soviet-style command economy, but this governance by experts starts to look a little shady in the wake of the Cold War and in those years. So those two things combined make Chicago a really, really interesting place to study, among other schools of thought, but they become a locus in American economics, for reviving the tenets of classical liberalism, but really focusing on the economic side of things. So, like, how can we create and sustain a free society on the principles of classical liberalism in the shadow of both a wariness about defending free markets that's hung over from the Great Depression, but also a real fear of centralized planning, on the other hand. And so Chicago becomes like this epicenter in the United States for people who are pretty sympathetic to free markets, but want to do so really sensitively, but also with the authority of being economists. So that's what Chicago has going for them. They are building a brand of kind of free market advocacy that has a scientific mooring in their language of economics while also have this political project in mind. That's why Smith becomes such an important figure for them, because he has the like authoritative cachet as the father of economics, but he can also be kind of like politically appropriate in the way that they want him to be. Yeah, well, boy, it really does seem like a lot of people prefer to read their Smith like they read the Bible, which is to say, you know, a la carte. <laughs> they pluck out what they like and just ignore the rest and, you know, yada, yada, yada. What did Smith mean when he coined his most popular phrase, the invisible hand? And how should we think of it today? That's coming up after one more quick break. Smith actually mean by the, this is the phrase everyone will know, even if they don't know where it came from. What did Smith actually mean by the invisible hand? Because the Chicago school was very effective at cementing this belief that the invisible hand of the market 
is this omnipotent and infinitely wise thing. And therefore, that any bad societal outcomes are always the fault of the state. They're always the fault of the state intervening Mm -hmm. in the market. And it's never, never the fault of the unfettered market. So I think the most general explanation for what the invisible hand means for Smith is this idea that individuals can promote the public good or there can be socially beneficial consequences of individual actions without intention or direction. That's probably the most general understanding of what the invisible hand stands for. Which seems right and wise. I wouldn't disagree with that. Sure. Not many people disagree with that statement, (laughs) that oftentimes my individual actions will have spillover effects. And sometimes they can, without my intention or direction, have socially beneficial consequences. Of course, that means that things can also have socially harmful consequences as well, right? Now, Smith doesn't exactly outline that use, but I just wanted to kind of point out that like there are unintended consequences to individual actions. Yeah. Smith uses the phrase the invisible hand three times, once in the theory of moral sentiments, once in the wealth of nations, and once in his essay on the history of astronomy. That's remarkable. Only three times. Only three times. Given the primacy of that phrase, right, how important it is uh, in the discourse that he barely even used it. It wasn't important to him. No, it's a kind of passing remark. And the other thing to realize is that in The Wealth of Nations, where he's using it, he's talking about how individuals make decisions on where to invest their capital. Do I invest my capital domestically or in a foreign nation? And Smith says, well, like, people tend to prefer to invest closer to home because they have a better sense of the laws and the norms and kind of a sense of trust in their own local environment. So he invests closer to home. And one of the unintended effects of that is that maybe that ends up generating a lot more productivity in the home market. So Smith is actually using that phrase to illustrate like how people think through their decisions of foreign investment. Preferring domestic industry to foreign industry, he ends up promoting this phenomenon that was no part of his intention. Okay, so that's a pretty, like, bland idea, right? As you said, it's like, that seems fine. What did the Chicago School do with it? Or kind of more specifically, what did Milton Friedman do with it? Milton Friedman calls the invisible hand the insight that created scientific economics. I'm probably not quoting that directly, but he says, you know, this is Smith's key insight. This is Smith's flash of genius. And what Friedman does is kind of reinvent the invisible hand as the miracle of free markets. This is how free markets work. And what's really genius about what Friedman does is that it has both a kind of scientific component. He uses price theory to really back this up. This is the magic of the price mechanism. So there is this sheen of scientific objectivity. This must be true. But then it also becomes a political statement that because this is how the price mechanism works, because this is how the miracle of free markets work, we should prefer free markets to government intervention. Only markets can really enshrine and protect individual economic freedom, not the government. So that's how the invisible hand really becomes politicized, right? It becomes to stand for the virtues of the free market and the vices of government, rather than just this kind of social theory of unintended consequences. You know, again, I'm no Smith scholar, but the idea that the market is some kind of unerring, divine force 
does not seem to be even close to what Smith believed. But, you know, it's perhaps a testament to Friedman's brilliance and rhetorical genius that he was able to yeah. to make that case. And there's just no question, whatever you think about Milton Friedman, that he was very smart and gifted. He was really gifted at that rhetorical power. Yeah. He found a phrase, he found an explanation, and he found an image that worked really, really well. And it's all over Free to Choose, you know, both the written book as well as the TV show. He uses it in all the columns that he writes. And it really worked. You know, Free to Choose, he wanted to call it the invisible hand. Yeah. Backing away from Friedman's Smith, I want to ask you about Smith's Smith. (laughs) I want to ask you about Smith himself and what he believed. I mean, did Smith think that the pursuit of wealth degraded us? as individuals? Did he see money as a corruptive force? Not necessarily like an always and everywhere terrible, evil thing, but did he see wealth and money as a corruptive force the way that many critics or skeptics of capitalism do? It's a really good question. I'm going to try and answer it in a kind of hopefully as non-obnoxious of a way as possible. Oh, no, give me the obnoxious. (laughs) So it's a really good question. Smith did not see wealth as inherently corrupting. He doesn't think that merely pursuing wealth is both morally degrading and degrading in other ways. He did see wealth as a new form of political authority. So this is where things get interesting. So in The Wealth of Nations, as well as in The Noctures on Jurisprudence, Smith says that political authority comes from four different sources. Distant ages past, people chose their chieftains and their leaders based on age. The most senior person would be the leader of the tribe or the clan. Maybe they chose their leader based on physical or kind of mental capabilities. People with the biggest brains or people who are the strongest. So capacities, age, these are sources of authority. What's interesting about the modern era is that two new sources of political authority emerge. Wealth and birth or family. And wealth is a particularly interesting source of political authority because it's not like physical, right? It's not attached to you as a person. And especially in kind of advanced societies, he says in the kind of advanced age or in like civilized and opulent countries, wealth has the potential to be a very like insidious source of power. And that's where I think If you want to use the term corruption, this is where I think we can start to think about using that term. I don't want to go straight down that road and just say, like, wealth becomes a source of corruption. But he says that these advanced societies become very prone to corruption because wealth becomes a new source of power. And it allows people who are previously political outsiders to suddenly become insiders. And this is kind of the foundation of his critique of the British East India Company. You have this elite company of wealthy merchants whose claim to power is the fact that they are wealthy merchants. And they work with lawmakers to bend the law to rig markets in their favor. And that is kind of where the connection between wealth, and I would say that's a form of political corruption that Smith was very worried about in modern societies. I think of capitalism not just as an economic system, I think of it as a morality, really, unto itself, Mm -hmm. or it becomes a morality without any serious ethical or spiritual counterbalances. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, it is a form of life in which consumerism and material self-interest are the highest pursuits. And Smith, 
again, unless I am misappropriating him, as <laughs> some of the people we've talked about have, he seemed to get that that is true, which is why he thought a healthy moral culture was perhaps a precondition for a healthy, productive capitalist economy. I think that's a really, really common interpretation of Smith and this kind of connection between the theory of moral sentiments, right? Does it provide the kind of moral foundation for the commercial flourishing that he outlines in The Wealth of Nations. And again, because I gave you that timeline of like, here at the theory of moral sentiments, he writes The Wealth of Nations, he goes back to the theory of moral sentiments. And that alone gives us reason to believe that like Smith cared deeply about both the moral consequences of the kind of transformations that he was seeing at the socioeconomic level to kind of go back to the moral work that he was working on. Now, again, I might be in the minority here, but I don't think that the theory of moral sentiments is like the moral template for capitalism. I don't think that. And you know, maybe I'm not really in the minority here, but I think because that temptation to read the theory of moral sentiments, especially that chapter, the one that I just got, like the universal corruption of our moral sentiments coming from this tendency to admire wealth and to neglect the poor— I think because that has just attracted so much attention and it just seems so unavoidable to want to think that Smith is speaking to us right now. But we have to remember at the end of the day, like, Smith is writing a work of 18th century moral sentimentalism and he's like responding to Hume and he's responding to Mandeville. He's not writing the theory of moral sentiments to say, you know, and these are my ethics of capitalism. That said, and this goes back to one of the earlier questions that you asked me, there is a relationship between the two books. And I think it's how Smith observed the human world. Yeah, you know, I think if you approach Smith honestly and openly, you just have to accept that there are many sides of him. And I don't think that makes him self-contradictory. I think it makes him complicated, you know, like a Nietzsche, a friend of the show. <laughs> you know, he his complexity leaves him vulnerable to a lot of different interpretations. And I guess in the end, when I was reading your book and just listening to you now, I I wonder how much faith he had in people. A lot of libertarians, for instance, who just accept that people are greedy and, and selfish and we need a society that makes use of those drives. But part of the appeal of Smith to me, or at least the version of Smith I'm, I'm getting from you, is that that just doesn't seem to be how he looked at the world or people. But maybe I'm just projecting. <laughs> I think it's really hard to say whether Smith would be really optimistic or really pessimistic about our current situation, right? How would he look at America in January of 2023? On the one hand, he might say, hey, where are the forms of state capture whereby elite interest groups might be trying to kind of like take control of the economy in ways that are disproportionately benefiting the wealthy and privileged at the expense of the poor? But was he optimistic that we could change that? I don't know. That's what put Smith in the gray area, as this podcast is called, he also didn't have much faith in politicians to do the right thing. That doesn't make him a libertarian, but he was very skeptical of ordinary politicians to kind of like not get swayed by the wrong ideas or not become victims of their own ideology and own ideas of like how things should run. He was deeply skeptical of certain forms of concentrated power. So like, on the one hand, he's saying, here's how you can see the problem differently. And once you see the problem, you'll be able to maybe fix it. But on the other hand, he's like, oh, I'm not so sure. People aren't so great at this all the time. 
you said, you know, the, the show is called The Gray Area, and, and it's really not a performative shtick for me. Like, I really sincerely value uncertainty and, and doubt as deeply underrated intellectual virtues. You know, like, the world is so complicated, and no one really has their arms around it. And Smith strikes me as someone with a lot of intellectual integrity and not just a really brilliant ideologue looking to make the world fit into his conceptual box. And I think a lot of people who have made use of him have done precisely that. And I hope if nothing else, we may have poked a few holes in that. Certainly your book does, and I hope people read it for that reason and many others. Well, thanks. That's a great pitch for my book. (laughs) Okay. The book is, again, Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. Glory Lou, this is great. Thanks so much for coming in and having this chat with me. Thanks again for having me, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. So I really enjoyed this episode. Glory was terrific. And, you know, for me, I I had a fairly decent idea of what Smith was about. I was aware of his first book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, but I was less aware of the history of Smith interpretations in this country. That was a history I just didn't know that much about, and Glory did a great job of laying it out. As always, let us know what you think about this one. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. We really do read all of the notes. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on whatever social media you participate in. It all helps. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. 